Well, it is great to be with you guys on Easter Sunday morning, and I was thinking about how maybe fitting it is that Easter falls on April Fool's Day this year, because if we are to be fools, let us be fools for the sake of Christ. Let us be fools as we share his name with people. Let us be fools as we minister to those in our community. Let us be fools for Christ, certainly. Today we're studying uh, from God's Word, and the sermon's entitled Access Granted. A few years ago, I was traveling uh, with a guy who literally crisscrosses the world for his work. And uh, one of the things that happens when you travel the world like that, if you are kind of faithful to one airline, you know how this works. They reward your loyalty, don't they? They give you certain perks and benefits. So you can earn miles, and if you earn enough miles, maybe you can bump up your worst class ticket to first class. And if you, uh, you know, earn enough miles, sometimes you get a companion pass or a free flight for someone. Sometimes uh, they give you status, right? You know, it's like your gold status, platinum status. He happened to be kind of a platinum status, and we were in this airport and so we went during our layover into a club that was reserved at this airline just for people with this status. And it was a kind of a unique experience for me, just to be honest with you. Uh, because in this place, there were recliners, televisions. People ask you if you wanted something to eat or drink. Uh, there were workspaces. And that's a little bit different from how I normally travel. I don't travel much, to be honest with you. If you know me very well, you know that that's not high on the list of things to do, is to get on an airplane and just fly all over the place. But once or twice a year, I find myself traveling, normally southwest, anywhere we go around the country. Southwest has its benefits, doesn't it? Your bags fly free. You actually still get peanuts on the plane. That's nice. Uh, but there's some drawbacks. I, I never remember to check in on time, so I'm always in the last group that boards. Normally not a problem because I fly by myself, but... You know how it works. You're, you have to stand around in these cattle chutes at Southwest. And if you're last, you know, no place for your overhead bin space and all that kind of stuff. But it may be even more troubling sometimes is that every time I fly Southwest, when I show up at the gate, there's never enough seats. You're just sitting in the floor, right? And about the time you sit in the floor, some kid next to you starts crying, you know, and you're just kind of thinking like, man, this is going to be a great flight. I bet I'm going to be seated next to them, you know? Or there's the obnoxious talker on the cell phone who talks so loud you literally want to take an ice pick and put it in your eye. You know, like, right, it's just like, man, and about that time, you'll look up and you'll see the Admiral's Club across the way. And it makes you want to travel more, even for those of us who don't travel, so that you could go sit in that club where it's nice and quiet, right? But you know as well as I do, if you show up at the door, you're just going to be looking from the outside in because you're not getting in unless you have the status, unless the access is granted by the card that you're given from the airline. And that's kind of what I want us to focus on this morning, because I bet all of us know exactly what it's like to have access denied. Maybe there's been something you wanted to be a part of, and you were excluded, or perhaps as a parent or a grandchild, there was a program or a school you really wanted your kids to be a part of, and it it just didn't work. For whatever reason, they couldn't go. And you know how that feels when you're kind of on the outside looking in. It's not a great feeling if we're being honest. But when we come to talking about Easter, I think there are a lot of wonderful things we could talk about. Certainly, we could uh, study the life of Jesus as the suffering servant because he did suffer and die in our place. That is absolutely true. We could study the crucifixion. And maybe we would come away with a new perspective of what it means for someone to be sacrificed in our place. 
We could look at the people who witnessed the crucifixion and how some of them were horrified by what they were seeing and some of them were literally changed from death to life by what they saw and some saw it and saw the anguish and the agony and it didn't faze them one bit. We could look at all that. We could look at the days that Jesus spent in the tomb. We could study that. We could wonder what happened and what it would have been like to have been there when the stone was rolled away and he was resurrected. All of those things would be important and certainly worthy of our study this morning. But I really want you to see that access has been granted. And that's the title of the message, Access Granted, because it's been given to you and I. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the 27th chapter. Matthew 27. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be the words on the screen behind us in just a minute so that you can follow along. But Matthew chapter 27 Verse 45 begins to teach us how access was granted to God the Father through Christ as we were given salvation when he died for us on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45, I'll begin reading. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now a centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. In this passage of scripture, the gospel writer, the apostle Matthew, gives us many details surrounding the death and burial of Jesus Christ. At this point, we have to realize Jesus has already been tried. He's been beaten. He's been scourged with a cat of nine tails. He's been spat upon. He's been ridiculed. He has been carry, uh, had been forced to carry his cross through the streets to the point of exhaustion where he couldn't carry the cross anymore. And someone from the crowd was pressed into service to carry the cross to this place called Golgotha, where Jesus was ultimately going to be crucified. At this point, they have laid him on that cross after they have stripped him naked. They have taken his feet and his hands and pierced them with nails and set that cross in a hole so that it is now up for everyone to see Jesus being crucified between two thieves. Now the real pain and the anguish begins. As spectators were hurling insult after insult at him, Jesus is literally in a fight for his life. Every breath is a fight. Verse 45 says that several hours into the execution, darkness covered all land. Now we have to understand that the Jews divided their time of the day into 12 hours. And so when they say it was about the sixth hour, they mean it was about lunch. It started at 6 a.m. So Jesus' crucifixion had begun at about 9 a.m. Now it's 12 noon. And it says that darkness covered the land for three hours. Many of you experienced the eclipse like I did here in Nashville, and it was nothing like that. Many of you have been a part of riding out some dark storms in your life. It was nothing like that 
Darkness covered the land for three hours, kind of leading us to think about what might have happened during that three-hour period of darkness. We might conclude from this description that Matthew gives us some things that would make your heart skip a beat. By God's divine will, this, this miracle is taking place to illustrate what was literally happening. The depths of darkness, evil, and sin were being mined from the earth and placed upon the shoulders of the Savior. What does that mean? Well, every sin of every person, past, present, and future, was being laid on Jesus. That blackness included every wicked thought you've ever had placed on Jesus. It included all the lies you've told yourself and told others placed on Jesus. It includes the immorality of your life, the lust of your life placed on Jesus. It includes your anger your, your bitterness placed on Jesus. It includes the foulest things you've ever said about others placed on Jesus. It includes your greed and your jealousy placed on Jesus. It was the blackness of your soul multiplied billions upon billions of times because it was the souls of people who had lived in past, were living presently, and those of us who would live in the future placed on Jesus. It was so overwhelming that the Savior who had once told his disciples, I and my Father are one, began to cry out when he could take no more after three hours. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The anguish of that moment can't be lost on us. For some of those who were watching, it was lost on them. But verse 48 and 49 tell us that someone gave him some sour wine to ease his pain, but others were still mocking him mocking him as he died. When Jesus spoke again, it was over. In that instant, everything had changed. Look again at verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now a centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and they said, truly this was the Son of God. In an instant, things changed. In the temple, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies where the presence of God resided among his peoples was torn from top to bottom. Tombs were opened up as a foreshadowing of the resurrection that was to come. And finally, there's this immediate life change of this centurion, a Roman official who'd been charged with making sure Jesus died appropriately and the men who were with him. It says that when they saw all, all of this, what immediately happened is they began to understand that this truly was the Son of God. It happened in an instant. Everything had changed. Men who had gambled just a minute before to take Jesus' clothing, now changed forever. I want us to focus this morning on the veil of the temple being torn because it indicates an immediate change of our relationship to the Father. You know, if you tear a curtain in your mom's house, there are some repercussions, right? But that's not what happened here. We're talking about a temple veil being torn top to bottom. I want to give you a picture of what's going on here because many times when we think about the temple, I think we think about a building, and that's only part of what's going on. When we think about the temple, we have to think about the temple on top of a mountain called the Temple Mount. 
Yes, there was a building, but there are courtyards right by the temple. So there's the temple, and then there's a courtyard here and another courtyard. And inside these courtyards, it's filled with the hustle and bustle of people coming and going as they come to offer sacrifice. You have people moving in and out, men and women. You have animals that are there waiting to be sold for sacrifice. You have some who have been sacrificed. You have the offering of sin going on, the grain offering, the fellowship offerings taking place. All of this is happening in the temple complex. It's a very busy place. While the crucifixion was going on, the work of the temple still continued. The priests were preparing at that time for the evening sacrifice that started at the ninth hour. If we think about our timeline again, crucifixion starts around the third hour. The sixth hour, there's this three-hour period of darkness that comes on, and I want this to be really in front of your minds. I want this to kind of be seared in your mind, so to speak. Jesus gives up his life at the ninth hour when the evening sacrifices are just starting. No one took it. He gave it up. Right when sacrifice was beginning, Jesus laid down his life. Inside the temple at the evening sacrifice, there would have been priests working. But they are only in the front part of the temple because they are in a place that they can go, but there's a place beyond that. It's called the Holy of Holies. They can't go in there. Once a year, one man, the high priest, was able to go into this place. It's separated by a veil. The veil is, is a big veil. It's, it's a heavy veil. It's about 60 feet wide, 20 feet high, and they say that the thickness of it, according to scholar Alfred Edersheim, is about the width of a man's hand. Now, my hands aren't, aren't huge by any stretch of the imagination, but just think about a curtain that's the width of my hand. It's an enormous, heavy curtain, and inside of this place called the Holy of Holies, is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if I could give you a simplified explanation of the Ark of the Covenant, it's like a box, and inside of this box are where the Ten Commandments are housed, the, the law that God gave Moses. And above it is what's called the mercy seat. And so if you could picture this, once a year, a priest walks behind this veil with blood that he has just taken from an innocent animal that has just been sacrificed, and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And if you can get this picture, it's as if God is saying, I'm sitting over the law and I'm judging you because all have fallen short, all are wicked. And when the priest does this on the day of atonement, he's making atonement for the sins of the entire nation. If you were here at our Good Friday service, you heard our choir lead us in this song as they understood for us that Jesus was this lamb who had died in our place. What was happening when the priest went in there was that he was covering the sins of the people. So we get this. Jesus dies at the time of the evening sacrifice. The priests are in the temple. The veil's ripped top to bottom. How do we know that the veil was ripped from top to bottom? How could we possibly know that? The scripture says that the disciples weren't hanging around. Only the apostle, the disciple John, is at the crucifixion. But we get an insight to this from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 says that after the resurrection, many of the priests came to faith in Christ. They were eyewitnesses to this. Imagine this. If they had seen inside the, the Holy of Holies in the temple before that, they would have died immediately. And now as they're going about their ministry, all of a sudden the veil rips top to bottom, exposing the holiest of holy places. The significance is enormous. God the Father did this because the old system of sacrifice was no longer necessary. You don't need it anymore. You don't need an innocent animal to die year after year for the sins of the people because this spotless lamb has died for the sins of all mankind, past, present, future. 
Now, I could explain this for us this morning, but God the Father did a great job with this when he allowed the Holy Spirit to explain it through the writer of Hebrews in our scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he was as perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their minds I will write them. He then says, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of sin, or where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. When we carefully read verse 11, it gives us a clear understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system. You had priests making offerings, sacrifices for the sins of the people over and over and over again. If you think about the temple, it must have been a very gruesome place. It must have not been lost on people who walked in there and saw blood flowing and blood on the ground and blood on the altars and dead animals. It must have been a really kind of poignant moment every time you entered that place. But one of the things that the writer of Hebrews lets us know is that when they did that, those sacrifices were not taking away the sins, they were covering the sins for a future time. As I mentioned, we learned Friday night from our choir and orchestra, the spotless Lamb of God gave his life for us. That's what verse 12 says. He offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Now you think about his words on the cross for a minute. Jesus says, it is finished. Well, what does he mean? It could mean that his life is finished. That would be appropriately uh, a way to look at it if we did it that way to say, uh, it is finished, his life was finished. But it was more than that. When Jesus was saying, it is finished, he's saying, all of the work is done. The sacrifice is complete. I have borne the sins of the world. I have taken them. They have been on my shoulders. You don't need another sacrifice. That's what we talk about when we say his death takes away our sins, past, present, and future. The Old Testament saints were covered by the blood of innocent animals, but their sins were erased with the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Erased. He erased them for all times. Sometimes we think of erasing, I think like we do, a pencil and paper. And the problem with that is that it doesn't quite get the picture, does it? Because even when you erase with pencil and paper, sometimes you still see the mess that you left behind. That's not what's said here. Erased for all time, never to be brought up again. He died in our place, the punishment that was set for our souls placed upon him. That's why the writer of Hebrews gives us this picture of Jesus sitting down. Now, I doubt at your place of business that you have an easy chair that you sit in most of the day, right? At our house, when we finally retire to the easy chair or the couch, it's because the work is done for the day. Kids are in bed. We're ready to go to bed ourselves. It's that moment where you turn on TV and relax a little bit, maybe grab a book that you've been reading for a little relaxation. But you do that when the work is done. No one sits in the easy chair while they're working. It doesn't work that way. You get up and you work. So the picture here of Jesus saying he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the work is finished. There is no more work for him to do. Jesus is waiting on the Father to say, go get my children, and he'll get up, and he'll come back. But the work of salvation is done. It's accomplished. 
When it's finished, I think we understand pretty clearly that Jesus died once for all. But I think it's the next part sometimes that we miss. It's this idea of being sanctified. Big, big word. Simply means that once you become a Christ follower, the character of Christ is put in you and you become more and more like him as you walk with him. So what that begins to look like is that you're exhibiting the character of Christ. You're becoming more and more like him as you live your life. That's what sanctification is. It's a process. Saved in an instant, sanctified over a lifetime. That's how it works, all right? But what we kind of miss in that, I think, is what, what the writer of Hebrews says, that we were perfectly sanctified. Because when Jesus died, he died on the cross and declared us perfectly righteousness. Verse 14 of the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. What we need to see here is that God isn't standing away from us waiting to drop the hammer on us. He's not standing away from us waiting for you to fail and mess up. In fact, the contrary is true. Verse 17 says that God remembers our lawless deeds no more. Once you become a Christ follower, the past is the past. God never talks to you about your past. So many believers live in the past. God doesn't talk to you about your past. I want to just remind us of this. When you're serving the Lord, when you're growing in the Lord, and something comes to your mind from long, long ago that you've been forgiven of, where's that come from? It's not from God. Because it says he remembers your lawless deeds no more. Why? Because you have been perfectly sanctified. You've been given everything. So what it means is that that once we've been saved, the past is the past no matter what anyone says. Now, we certainly live in the consequences of our actions and our decisions, but we don't live in the guilt of those decisions. That was paid for on the cross. There's never going to be a need for another sacrifice. We don't need it. So we have to come to the point of asking ourselves this question this morning. Are we living with access granted or are we still on the outside looking in? Now here here could be for you and I, I think. There's two people maybe in the room that would need to answer this question. If you've never given your life to Christ, it could be that you're looking from the outside in, standing as if you're far off, not realizing that when Jesus paid it all, you got everything that you needed. You got the card. It's there. You, you have to take it, you have to receive it, and you say, well, what does that look like? I, I'm not sure that I understand. The scripture says that any person can be saved. So you can, I can, any person can be saved. There's not a person in this room who's listening or a person who's online listening today that cannot be changed by the blood of the spotless lamb. You can be saved, no doubt. So how am I saved? How are you saved? How could you know that you would be saved today? It starts with a recognition of who you are and the situation you find yourself in. And that situation is dead in your trespasses and sin. Those who are without Christ are dead people walking. They don't realize it. And here's how you can know. Here's how it starts to show up in your life. Is your heart set towards the things of you or the things of God? Are you constantly trying to fill the void that only God can fill with pleasure or money or a new position or a new job or a new relationship or what? None of that will fill that hole in your heart. Only Jesus Christ can. He's the only one. And as we're dead in our trespasses and sins, that sounds pretty hopeless, but thank God it's not. Thank God that there's a free gift of salvation. The scripture says that anyone who believes will be saved. And you say, well, how has that happened? It's a word that we call repentance. Repentance just means that you change directions, change your mind. 
You're walking after yourself. You're trying to live for yourself. And the scripture says, turn, repent, change, go a different direction. Well, what way would you go? Go the way of the Father. Go the way of the cross. You say, well, how would I do that? The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a fact, a promise given to all those who would believe. It's available for me. It's available for you. So the question is, are you on the outside looking in? If you came here this morning, I want to assure you of something. Your parents' faith or your child's faith or your spouse's faith, they won't cut it. It's you. It's me. Nobody stands before the throne of God with their family. We stand as a soul, and he says, do I know you? How will I let you in? Well, I look at the Lord and say through the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for me. Because I believe that he was the Savior. I believe that he died, that he rose again. And I believe he sits at the right hand of the Father. Saved. How often do you have to do that? Once. How quick or how long does it take for a centurion? It took a moment. When he saw all that happened around him, he understood immediately who Jesus was. Today may be the first time you've ever heard any of this. You don't need a degree. You don't need to have read the whole Bible. You don't need anything but the truth of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, his bloodshed for you. I think there's a second group sometimes, and that's the believers. And when we talk about access granted or access denied, we know that we have access to the Father. But you can always tell when a believer has not been in the presence of the Father because they lose a couple of things. Maybe the first thing to go is their prayer life. You have access, but you find yourself still on the outside looking in, and it's kind of crazy because... It's like you have the platinum card to get into the Admiral's Club. You just walk up and show it, and, and you're in. And in fact, the verses that follow says that Jesus has allowed us to go before the Father with boldness. When you lose that boldness, when you kind of slink away, you've not been in the presence of the Father. And that's not why Jesus died, is so you could stand far off. And it might be this morning that you need a reset. You can tell they lose their boldness in prayer. They lose their boldness in witness can't witness to anybody why because they haven't been with the father and it's sad because they have all the access that they need and yet they're not taking advantage of it I assure you if we were at an airport today and I asked you if you wanted to sit on the floor by the kid that was screaming and the guy talking too loud on the cell phone or you wanted to use my card and we'd go into this new club over here and sit in a comfy chair watch a little basketball this afternoon what would you pick well, some of you'd be stubborn enough to say, I like the floor. Well, why? Why, when God has given us everything we need through Christ, would we do that? For some of us who are believers, we're living in the access of the Father. We know what it is. We're, we're thanking God, and today's a day of, of joy for us and peace and rest, and, and we're excited that Jesus has changed our lives, and that's what it ought to be. It ought to be a, a day of celebration for us because we realize so much has changed in an instant. Death, where is your sting? Gone. Hope for this life and life eternally is ours. So you, you see what it happens. There's this opportunity in our lives, but some of you, you're still on the outside looking in. And today's the day. 
Today's the day. You say, how does it work? Well, it's really simple. If you want to be saved, cry out to the Lord. All who call on the name of the Lord are saved. In a moment, we're going to do something that we call our time of response. And we respond because what we've done here this morning is not a lecture. It's not a presentation. It's the preaching of the Word of God. And the preaching of the Word of God demands a response. And I'm going to tell you what's about to happen so that you'll be prepared. I'm going to ask you in a minute to stand up. I'm going to pray. And when I'm done praying, we're going to sing a song of response. Some of us, our response may be that we need to step out as soon as that song starts and come and profess our faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. That sounds funny to step out of the seat that you're in or maybe ask somebody to move so that you could get out and come take me by the hand and say that today you wanted to know Christ as Savior. And you say, well, why would we do that? Well, Jesus said that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So it is a bold response. But it was a bold statement made on the cross, deserving a bold response. Some of us as believers, we're realizing that, yeah, we've had the access card, but we've kind of tucked it away somewhere. Oh, and everything else has become more important than spending time with the Father and enjoying the benefits of His presence. And today's the day where we really need to say, Lord, it's time for that reset. It's time for me to take full advantage and walk with you. Some of us as believers, as we sing about Jesus being the Lamb of God, it's time for us to just proclaim it with all our hearts. To sing it as a testimony of praise this morning. However you respond, respond to the Lord. This is the time. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'll pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we ask now as we respond that you would move in our lives however it needs to happen, Lord, for the person who's lost that they would be saved, for the person, Father, who has known you but they're not living in the access that's been granted to them. I pray today that they would just renew and rededicate their lives to you. And that it wouldn't just be words that they could say next Easter or Christmas, Lord, but that it would mean now. Father, you'd restore the joy of their salvation. Father, for some of us, we need to just be reminded that our sins are looked upon no more. You've chosen not to remember them because when you see us, you see Jesus. Thank you. Father, some of us, we're just reminded today of how we need to live in the joy of our master to live in the joy of Jesus and as we sing now Lord we offer up this sacrifice of praise in Jesus name we pray amen